Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 7th, 2022. Sometimes even the world's leading thinkers, whatever that means, and writers have to make hard decisions. We all have to make hard decisions. And most of us, when we think of hard decisions, tend to think, I think, in either or. Either you, you make decision A or B. You have to choose. It's, it affects all of us. Huge decisions. Who we get married to, what careers we take, um, whether or not we have children, where we live, and so on and so forth. And particularly if we're in large organizations, the either or is particularly relevant. But there's another way, I think, of thinking about how we make decisions. Rather than thinking either or, we can think both and. In other words, we don't want to create dichotomies, parallels, either ors. This idea of both and is a familiar, interesting concept amongst management thinkers, people who, who write about organizations. A um, number of books have been written touching on it. There was one from 2019 called Navigating Polarities, Using Both and Thinking to Lead Transformation. But now we have a book focused exclusively on both and thinking, uh, embracing creative tensions to solve your toughest problems. Um, and we're thrilled that um, one of the co-authors, uh, Marianne W. Lewis, who teaches in Cincinnati, Ohio, is on the show. Uh, Marianne, we were chatting before. I said, I'm not much of a management theorist. And you said, this isn't a management theorist book. This is a book for everyone, right? That's right. That's right. I mean, our original research, and we've been studying, I've been studying paradoxes for about 25 years. My co-author for 20 has all been in organizations. I'm the dean of a business school. I do tend to think in business terms. But I think both in thinking, really, and its underlying premise, which is that the tensions that surround us are more paradoxical than they are dilemmas. It surrounds everything we do. It's in our daily lives. It's in our relationships, whether it's from our parenting to our leadership. Um, so to us, this the more we found the patterns, both of challenges and effective approaches, the more we've seen that they translate. Marianne, the older I get, and I won't give you how old I am, but we're not of entirely dissimilar ages, the more I think that all the dilemmas in my life are the same ones that existed 30 or 40 years ago. Do you think there's some truth to that? Well, we're both, we're all, not both, we're all confronted with this both and thinking throughout our lives. Obviously, our narratives change, circumstances change, we grow up, we get married, we have kids, we change careers. But maybe the architecture of these choices don't change as much as we'd like. I, I couldn't agree more, Andrew. I mean, if I could maybe dig a bit into that point, when Wendy and I were really studying these tensions that that leaders, as an example, yeah, and just to jump in, your co-author is Wendy K. Smith, another yes, thank you so much, distinguished we academic. She is. She's phenomenal. Um, when Wendy and I really started studying uh, these these tensions, what we found is that underlying, if we kind of dig into them, the, there's a paradox in terms of their nature. So when I say paradoxes, I think it's getting exactly what you're saying, Andrew, in that paradoxes are contradictory, interwoven, and persistent. So exactly as you said, we can deal with a decision today, for example, 
Do we focus on our current demands, our current targets and goals, or do we think about learning for the future or setting a vision? That's kind of a today and tomorrow tension. We could make a decision today on that issue and in the not so distant future, basically have the same tension come up. Now we learn through the, uh, that time about, all right, so how do I manage the today, tomorrow, the work family, the them, uh, you know, us kind of tensions that we find. But for our view, the more you approach these tensions as paradoxes. So think of, think in terms of yin yang, that both sides define each other, that they're connected as well as contradictory. It really changes our approach because it shifts us from just make a decision and assume you can put it to bed and walk away to knowing that it is going to resurface. It, it just shifts our way to look for more creative approaches. It's not this mutually exclusive decision between two alternatives. That's a very rationalistic approach. I'm not saying we shouldn't be rational, but sometimes it's actually not practical because it is paradoxical and paradoxes tend to kind of fight against that overly simplistic black mm. and rationality. I mean, I, I love paradox. I, I live and die with paradox. But do you think our, and I know you're not a brain scientist, you're, a, you're an organizational thinker, you're in business school, but do you think there's something in our brain, in the way that our brain is wired, to make us believe that there's something unnatural about paradox? I think there are a number of things, and there's some really good brain science exactly around that, Andrew. You, I mean, you're, you're spot on. I mean, I'll give you a couple of examples. One, if I go maybe not to the brain, well, it's part to the brain, but the, the nature of language is we tend to define things in terms of what they are by what they are not. So very often in the way that we just process things, we're, we're separating because it helps us build some boundaries. Um, a, a, a fellow by the name of Herb Simon actually won the Nobel Prize around this idea of bounded rationality. And that idea of brain, the way our brains work, is that we have to oversimplify because our brain simply cannot handle the complexity. But as we oversimplify, as we define what is by what is not, we basically create contradictions. Even in places, if you kind of go to the Tai Chi or other areas that have studied paradox for centuries, what they would say is that's actually not the natural state of things. It is the way we process them, but it's not actually the way that opposites ebb and flow and connect. Yeah, of course, the great 18th century German philosopher Hegel oh, exactly. um, mm -hmm. had his dialectic, which Marx took and developed in a political sense, right. suggesting that that the ebb and flow or the synthesis and uh, yes. uh, the, the synthesis and what's the, what's the other word, Marianne? Antithesis. As if synthesis and mm -hmm. antithesis would keep on resulting in purer and purer syntheses. But right. it's interesting in terms of the brain. When I got your book in the, in the mail, my... I took a step back because it's not a title that comes naturally, both and thinking. Who came up with this original term? Was it you or Wendy or another thinker? Well, I mean, it, it, you know, you, you just showed some examples, Andrew. I mean, both and thinking is a phrase that we're hearing increasingly. We hear it in organizations. We hear paradox increasingly in organizations. One of the things that we're really trying to do in this book is move from a term or a label to actually an approach. 
And I do think that's a step, a, a pretty significant step. And to us, both and thinking as an approach means first kind of building an appreciation for tensions because they are double-edged swords. They can be paralyzing, they can be detrimental, but they can also be energizing. They can fuel creativity and learning. I mean, think about this as kind of conflict and division. Yes, it can absolutely pull teams apart. It can also foster uh, tremendous opportunities for innovation. So the question to me, us, isn't whether you, you manage tensions, it's how. And we found that there are some real vicious cycles in that we've seen in firms, in leaders, by pulling things apart in a very oversimplified either or, you can kind of go down a rabbit's hole that is a vicious cycle. And we've seen the opposite for those leaders who really are Bosan thinkers. They, they seek out the paradoxes. They see them as opportunities um, and they grasp at them. And what we're trying to do in this book is suggest one, how do you build a deeper understanding? So you actually appreciate the tensions rather than run for them, get defensive. You actually embrace and you move toward. And then we, we try to talk about um, tips, practices, approaches, and give a lot of examples of how they work in, in the world. Um, I think without that, I mean, I love paradox, just as you said. I mean, I'm really keen on it. And at the same time, um, it can take you down this very philosophical world yeah. that I very much enjoy, but it's not going to help you when you're really dealing with a vexing problem. So we're trying to be a little more pragmatic as well. Well, we'll have to entitle this show. I know you're keen on paradox. We'll call the show and um, Marianne keen on paradox. You mentioned that the book, which I've been browsing this morning, is full of examples. It comes with a blurb from Paul Polman. So many management books come with blurbs from Pullman. He seems to be the, the Pope of the blurb, the Pope of management theory. Um, I know you grew up in Palo Alto in the heart of Silicon Valley. You went to Palo Alto High School, so you're familiar with this area. Your father taught at Stanford. Are there tech people who have embraced both and thinking or are the tech giants of today, the Elon Musks and the Mark Zuckerbergs, should they read your book? Oh, I absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think they should. I think uh, now, I can't speak to those two people you just mentioned, but so one of the, I'll give you an example that one of the studies that I did um, a few years back was in Silicon Valley. It was a number of product design firms. So while they're anonymous, think IDEO, right? Big firms of Silicon yeah. Valley. And so one of the tensions as an example that we studied there was this issue between kind of incremental innovation and radical innovation. And while they both sound like innovation, they're, they take diametrically different approaches. I mean, incremental innovation is really improving what you already have. It takes you down a very certain path. You, you know who to talk to. You talk to your current customers. You talk to your current engineers. You, it's improving the mousetrap, so to speak. Radical innovation is a very different beast. It takes this blue sky thinking you need to get out of your current uh, customers to engineers because they only see what they've already been seeing. It takes a very different approach. And as we talk to these product design leaders, what they said is this kind of uh, improving versus radical innovation takes this paradoxical thinking that really pushes them to separate. I mean, really think about them as two different opposing approaches and connect. How do they build a vision for the company, uh, a, an approach to their different employees that thinks about these as a, a connected 
today and tomorrow kind of view to the firm, to technology. It was fascinating to talk to these leaders because I typically think of innovation as future. But they say, yeah, but you don't pay the bills with the radical innovation. Mm. But Marianne, I, I'm guessing that programmers, for example, mm -hmm. who work in very concrete ones and zeros, for example, in the digital yeah. economy, they would have a particularly hard time with this kind of thinking, do they? I think that's a really great question. We we, we developed a um, an instrument called uh, the Paradox Mindset Inventory, and we've studied it across cultures and within and across firms. But I have, but I actually haven't studied what you just asked, which is say the difference between a programmer. I'll tell you at face value. I would say you're probably right. If you tend to be a very linear thinking thinker, um, that this both and approach could be hard because it doesn't fit into the rational zeros and ones, as you said, versus looking for the blurry, looking for the, you know, you you noted Paul Pullman. I mean, I've studied him for for many years. So what years. is it about Pullman that um, oh, you, you really love the book? You write about him a little bit in the book. What, what is it about Pullman that he's a model for this? Okay, so I mean, I look at what he did with the Unilever uh, Sustainable Living Plan. It is a an entire strategy that was based on paradox, because it was really about how do you build double the profit of Unilever and cut in half their environmental footprint. And when he was building the plan, people said, you know, it doesn't work that way, right? If profit goes up, so does the environmental footprint. And he said it can't. We touch 2 billion consumers a day. That was then. That was like 10 years ago. He said, so they have to they have to go in opposite directions. And he built an entire strategy and the infrastructure to make sure that they were tracking both profitability and environmental impact and making sure that they were going in the right directions, which means opposite directions. So to me, Andrew, that's a really interesting example. People always kind of said it doesn't work that way. And he said, then put it on the table. He, he said, if you don't have tensions in the room, you haven't got enough options. You haven't brought in enough perspectives. So he was always looking for those tensions. I mean, you know, in this world we live in now, I think we need more diverse, con diverging perspectives on a whole host of issues if we're actually going to figure out the more complicated dilemmas of our world. Marianne, you don't need me to tell you that you're a woman. Um, do you think that there is a a gendered element here. Many of these new theories of organization, of the brain, come with a, a gendered component. Do you think there's something in the male brain or the male upbringing that makes mm -hmm. men more comfortable with the either or and the, and, and the female uh, with the both and thinking? I'm thinking, for example, uh, of mothers running a mm -hmm. household where you have to juggle many different things for better or worse, whereas men tend to operate outside the household and therefore uh, perhaps don't deal with that kind of day-to-day -day reality? We have, you know, it's it's a great question. Um, and I've seen very early findings that suggest something similar to what you're saying about a, a gendered approach to the way we think both and versus either or. I guess I would, I would say, well, I, I can't say that strongly. I think it's more likely about, peop about people who feel a need for control. I think if the more you feel a need to control uncertainty, the more you're going to lean toward an either or. And those if are the insecure, the people who are looking for control. Are they the ones who are power fanatics or they're insecure? How would you define them? 
Well, I don't know even if it's that they're insecure. I mean, a lot of it is the way we're, we're raised. I mean, I, so, I mean, some of the cultural work that we've done suggests, which won't surprise you at all, that if you tend to go to, say, the Chinese, um, Singaporean, we've studied a variety of other cultures, they tend, because of their raising being raised in a more Tai Chi Buddhist environment, they do tend to think more both and versus Americans tend to be more either or because we're developed around kind of a rational logic approach. We, that happens very early. So I don't want to say it's all a power and, and dynamic, but there's certainly, especially for someone who has been raised thinking about that rational logic, it feels uncertain and then anxiety provoking to be in that uncertainty between the both and, because you've got to get comfortable in the discomfort of tensions. You have to be, I mean, when Paul Pullman says, I want to feel uncomfortable, it's because he sees the value in those tensions. I feel the same way. I mean, but I don't think it, it is always comes natural if you've been raised in the West. So I one tend the, to see yeah. So one of the subtitles of your part two paradox system is, on tightrope walkers, virtuous cycles with the paradox system. We did a show with Paul Thagard, the Canadian philosopher, who has a new book out called Balance, suggesting that we need more balance. He's a sort of, he is a brain scientist, a philosopher. Is this all about learning how to, to, to walk literally and metaphorically these tightropes? Yes. Here's my, why I'm, I want to say a caveat. I don't, I worry about the term balance because it sounds like a compromise. It sounds like finding a place in between that feels stable. Um, and maybe this is what you, your other guest was talking about. We don't see it stable at all. We call it a, dyna a dynamic equilibrium. We find it that you're kind of balancing on this constant back and forth uh, between picket, work and family, today and tomorrow, efficiency and innovation. I mean, we could put so many different place things on that uh, seesaw that, but it's about walking back and forth because it, if, if not, I'm afraid if it sounds like a, a balance, it sounds static and it does sound like a compromise. And I think that's not, that misses the richness of the differences at the, do, at the poles. And I think you want to bring that out. You want to understand why you need to be thinking about the future and focused on today. You need to be really caring for your family and your life. And you need to be thinking about your work as a financial and, and other source of meaning. So if that makes sense, I think it is balancing, which might sound like just adding a gerund, but I do think it's more powerful than that. Marianne, some people might be watching this and thinking, well, I know this, it's obvious. Uh, the balance, you got to, you never can have I mean, you kind of got to have your cake and eat it. You've got to balance mm -hmm. them out. You've got to juggle different arguments. You come up with compromises. Isn't this kind of obvious? I mean, you're putting it into, I know you're not, you're not a, you, you don't want to embrace the idea of you being a management theorist, but you teach at business school. This is the kind of book that's probably going to be read at business school. Some people might say, well, this is the business school community going round and round in circles. They come up with one paradigm and then they write books pulling it apart and they teach it. And then two years later, they come, someone will discover that actually it's good to take a strong position. How would you respond to that? Okay. I think there are a couple of responses and I, I, I love that question, Andrew. It's great. I mean, as a management professor, I will tell you, you know, 90% of the things that you teach, people say, well, isn't that obvious? 
And you can tell the difference between, say, an executive student versus an undergraduate student, because if you're an executive student, they tend to say that much less often because they realize it doesn't happen very often. People don't do this well, certainly don't do this well consistently in terms of whether it's both and thinking or, you know, you could think about a host of different management techniques. They might seem, quote unquote, obvious, but they, they actually don't get done in practice. And my approach, my view of that is one of the reasons is in our defensiveness, in our anxiety, we lean toward the either or, and we actually spark some really vicious cycles that take us. They can paralyze. They can actually be quite destructive because you kind of, the more you do once lean too far to one side, the more it becomes your favorite habit, frame, uh, identity. And it's really reinforcing to the point that you reach a po- a place where you've completely negated that you need the other side. And then you tend to swing the pendulum and overcorrect. Um, so I guess the one piece I would say is it's only, ob- it might be obvious at the surface level, but in practice, it is challenging and rare. And I think it, we're trying to help people build that into much more of a, a positive ongoing habit. I think your other piece is really, really key in terms of, is it just another fad? Um, it's one of the reasons I love paradox so much. And as I started getting into this and realizing, oh my gosh, the Greeks, uh, the Buddhists, they have known this for hundreds of years. It's just something that has kind of been trained out of us over time in, in the US. Um, I, don't, I don't think this is a fad. I think this is actually an existential approach and it's a difference in the way we think. But I think it's about moving one, toward understanding, and then second, towards practice. And I think the practice is hard, but it has to begin with that understanding. Marianne, we did a show earlier today with uh, Jason Kander as a Kansas-based politician, ex-military guy who's just written a book about history of his own mental illness. Um, America, of course, one of the pandemics affecting America these days seems to be the pandemic of anxiety, of mental ill health. Is your theory um, bound up in anxiety? Do you think that when people embrace the idea of both and thinking, that it can be good for their mental condition? I think it can be good for their mental condition, but I do think it takes practice. Because as you're learning to live in those tensions, it it is anxiety provoking at the start. I mean, put us into the difficult conversations, get more diverse and if not- You go to the mental gym then. I mean, it doesn't just come naturally. You got to work at this thing. No, you got to work at it. And it, and, but it's like anything. I mean, if you work at it, it, it's like a muscle and you get better at it. You get more comfortable at it. You find value in it. I think it's going to build greater resilience. And we Has need it that. affected you? Do you have an, uh, an example from your own life where it's been helpful? Oh, yeah. I mean, so, I mean, I, I'm the dean of a business school, so I tend to live in some of these um, challenges myself. Um, I'm checking because I think I might have a bit of an echo. No, go on. I think it's fine. Okay. Um, so, so you know, I, I was working, I'll give you the example. I was working on a, a major innovation recently, and I love innovation. I'm just that that tends to be kind of where I gravitate as a leader. But a classic challenge when you're doing something new is building on traditions. You know, you want to recognize this was in a program. And I was thinking, realizing there was great care and devotion to the traditions that had been, you know, two decades plus in the making. And our customers, our employer, which are students, our employers, also customers had changed dramatically. So how do you manage 
meeting those changing demands and respecting, honoring, treasuring traditions. And we ended up really playing with that uh, tension, I think, in a very valuable way, because those legacies, those traditions ended up becoming really the principles. We thought about those as the foundations. And so whatever kind of new elements to the program we were building, and they, we built some very new kind of radical innovations onto the program, they never left from the, re- from the base principles. But that was a way of thinking about the old and the new, the tra- traditions and change. Um, it was just, and it was hard. It was hard because I had a lot of people, myself included, who cared deeply about the traditions. And at the same time, we're hearing all of the concerns and the needs to change. And it was, it was pushed us and me and everybody included to think, how do you do both? Are there lessons in the book, Marianne, finally for America, where there are half, half the country seems to want to innovate, to push forward, and half wants to retreat, to fall back on traditions. The book suggests that you have broader answers, not just to the business community. What could America broadly, and particularly American politicians, who really seem stuck, the two-party system seem seem stuck in the either-or paradigm, what could they learn from your book and your new way of thinking? I think polarization is a classic either-or vicious cycle. We call it trench warfare in the book. We, We write about that politics, but also, I mean, it happens in various ways, but, you know, left and right is another way to think about uh, a paradoxical approach. I think we need opposing views, but we also need them to communicate and to learn. Um, I think, I think an example is the way you just said it. I wouldn't necessarily say that one means we're moving forward. The other means moving back. I would love to think about it more as different sides, seeing what a better future is and seeing different ways to get there. But how do we actually have conversations, Andrew? I mean, this- I I mean, I take your point, Marianne, but it doesn't Mm -hmm. sell. Look at Trump. I mean, whatever you think of him, he's a brilliant salesman of himself and his ideas. And he is the ultimate uh, anti-model for for your book, um, Both and Thinking. He presents the world in in a, in, a, in a very aggressive zero-sum game, both for himself and his ideas in America. So I think there are a I lot of politicians right, but, on but both sides. The, the either-or ideas, particularly in politics, they sell. They're easy to grasp. Yours no. may be true, but they're more complicated. No, I, I agree. I mean, so I, I'm just finishing. Uh, I've got a couple books that I've just loved recently. Um, the one I'm finishing right now is Arthur Brooks' Love Your Enemies. And I love um, Ezra Klein's Why We're Polarized. I mean, both go into so many different views. They're looking more about kind of why we're where we are. But we've got to be able to move past this this. Uh, division that is really about kind of energizing the base, which is kind of firing up to more about how do we actually think about persuasion, uh, listening, communicating across. I, I think it's it's really concerns me a great deal. I, I hope we start to see some positive changes, and it's only going to start, but I think more at the individual level. We have to prove that we do not seek out politicians that want to win at all costs on one side and not find approaches. I I mean, I like our our two-party plus system. I think it's democracy works because we have opposing views, but it only works with those opposing views when they're actually listened and they can be part of a a solution together. Right now, they're battling in the trenches. Well, one way of getting out of those trenches is by getting uh, 
Marianne Lewis's new book. She co-authored it with Wendy Smith, both for Anne Thinking, Embracing Creative Tensions to Solve Your Toughest Problems. It seems obvious, but as Marianne said, it isn't as obvious as it seems. And uh, it's an important, I think, way of trying to figure out some of our endless paradoxes, both in a public and a personal way. Congratulations, Marianne, on the book. Uh, what else are you reading? You mentioned another book. You mentioned uh, the, the Brooks book. What else you, would you suggest people read? Uh, I mentioned that. I mentioned Klein's book, Why We're Polarized. Yeah. The other one I've really enjoyed recently, and you've probably talked about it before, but is Adam Grant's Think Again. Yeah, I, mean, I, think your book those, too. I think they're kind of, we're similar and different from all three of those in that they are just pushing us to get out of the ruts in our brains, especially when they're polarizing us and making it harder to learn and connect. And I think right now we need to be doing both. Excellent, 